I'm Mike Sheridan, and this is The Dell. Hey, you're very welcome along to another episode of The Delve with me, Mike Sheridan, brought to you by our friends at Spotlight Oral Care. Use the code DELVE25 for 25% off everything at checkout. So my guest today is Megan Dam. We spoke to Megan way back at the start of lockdown. I had just finished reading her book, The Problem With Everything, and uh, really loved it. It's such an easy read. I flew through it. Um, and it's kind of, I suppose, ostensibly at least based around the culture wars or the lack of nuance, uh, two elements of the culture wars. And um, especially, I think at the moment, it's quite prevalent. If you peek into social media at any point, something along those lines seems to be going on. And um, Megan has written for some of the biggest and best publications in the world. She wrote for the LA Times for a long time. She's written for the New York Times, the New Yorker. And she also has a new podcast uh, called The Unspeakable and the first episode should be out now. So please do enjoy this conversation with Megan Dan. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, are you are you in New York or uh, did you did you head to the city? Are you still <laughs> no, out there? No, I I escaped. I um I did uh, the shameful thing and I went to the countryside. And then, and then I made the mistake of writing about it. So I've been I, I was dragged on Twitter all last week mercilessly. <laughs> I was going to say, because I, I uh, responded to your tweet about that article, I really liked the article. Um, and a couple of days ago, I started getting weird emojis and like of babies and poo and stuff like that. Oh, but you started getting it. I started just, just be- like, because I had responded. It's, and I was like, where has this come from? So what, what happened here? And this is like a, you know, a prime example of, of a kind of um, online outrage. Well, you know, it was interesting because I realized what the mistake I made, I was trying to be vague about my whereabouts. And so I just had Appalachia, which is a huge area, sort of the southeastern toward Midwest part of the U.S. It encompasses like five or six states. And I'm in Virginia. I'm in southwestern Virginia. But I didn't want to say that. So I just said Appalachia. And the thing is, Appalachia, it, there's a lot of baggage around that in the U.S. It's um, associated with like extreme rural poverty and a lot of the opioid crisis. And so I, I didn't, I just didn't think about it. So I, a lot of people, there's a sort of social justice wing of Appalachians and they, you know, assume anybody from the outside who even says the word is punching down as if you're talking about, you know, as if you're making fun of them, which I wasn't at all. And so I, I just sort of uh, hit a tripwire with that, uh, group and it just completely uh, ignited. How do you deal with that now? Has it, has it changed? How do you kind of deal with blowback? As I know you mentioned in the book. Um, yeah, I I'm a, I really try to take the high road. I don't get in Twitter fights. I would probably have more followers if I did. Um, and I, you know, in this case, I just sort of I, I ignored it for a long time, and then they started getting really upset. Like, um, like uh, I was a virus spreader. Then people started behaving as if they were genuinely concerned that I was spreading the plague down here and that their safety was threatened, that I was a literal murderer, <laughs> literal. And uh, so then I said, well, okay, like, let me just, I'll, I'll clear up a few things. And I, you know, I explained, I had quarantined on both sides, et cetera, et cetera. But that just, 
you know, it, anytime you validate them with a reaction, it just makes it worse. So yeah. I still think ignoring it is nine times out of 10, the best way to handle it. Megan, I love the book. Um, Thank you. The book's called The Problem With Everything. I asked my girlfriend to download it just so I could have somebody to talk about it with. The Problem With Everything wasn't the initial title for it. You had a, a different title for it and you kind of go into that in the book as yeah. well. Yeah, yeah. So, well, initially it started off um, as a book about feminism. So I started thinking about all of this stuff probably in late 2014, early 2015. I started to notice that a lot of the conversation around women's issues was rooted in this premise that women were uh, like some sort of monolithic oppressed group. Like suddenly there was this idea that um, anything you said as a woman uh, was by default a, a political statement that you know, any given man had more power than any given woman. And it really flew in the face of all the assumptions I had growing up as a, as a girl in the 70s and the 80s. And I always considered myself a feminist and still do. Um, but I noticed that a lot of the online discourse was really reductive and, and you know, completely lacking in nuance and critical thinking. Uh, and there was this whole idea of the badass, right? Um, so, you know, you saw that online a lot and on, on, you know, Tumblr blogs and on social media, like, you know, there was this sort of uh, notion that, you know, just being a woman in the world was so difficult that getting out, out of bed every morning and going to work and, you know, facing down the patriarchy at every turn, uh, you know, simply by, by showing up to your job and paying your rent on time made you a badass. And uh, I thought it was so silly and, and also like insulting to women. Like, it, you know, it's just, it, it, we're so infantilized that somehow, you know, the littlest bit of effort is considered a heroic. So, so yes, to answer your question, initially the book was going to be called You Are Not a Badass. <laughs> and then it was going to be maybe like, well, you're probably not a badass. There are some badasses in the world. Um, but by then, uh, Trump was elected. You know, I, I, I started that version of the book assuming that Hillary Clinton would be elected president. Uh, that didn't happen. I was as shocked as anyone. And so I had to sort of reframe the book. But at the same time, uh, the conversation around all these issues really mushroomed well beyond feminism. And, and the social justice conversation was everywhere. And so, you know, there was just all of this sort of, you know, competing marginalized groups and 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 shaming and and it really took on a life of its own so the book became much uh much broader than just a discussion of feminism and so it was about the the wokeness industrial complex in general and you went you were actually around the same time you were going to a college campus to do a semester of teaching so you had right. this kind of first-hand insight into that generation of uh people or or kids or whatever young adults whatever you want to call them and how yeah. reacting to stuff in real time. And you kind of said, like, look, both extremes are wrong. You know, they're not right. the like super just social thoughts or better part social justice warriors that you think they are, but you know, they're not, you, you know, there's a middle ground basically. You kind of go, you kind of that's the nuance in it. Yeah, you know, it was a really strange time to be on a college campus. It was strange for the students, it was strange for me as a teacher. So I went out to do a visiting professorship at the University of Iowa, and that's a state in the Midwest, um, generally a very Republican state, very conservative. Uh, the college town where the university is, is more liberal. So, you know, there's a strange dynamic when you get into 
uh, liberal enclaves in otherwise very conservative areas. The, the people in those enclaves tend to be, uh, you know, want to let you know how liberal they are all the time. Um, there's an overcompensation that goes on. Uh, so, you know, you had that dynamic in the town itself. But I was teaching these students and they were adults. They were graduate students. So these were people in their 20s, sometimes their late 20s. Uh, and I was teaching a cultural criticism class, uh, among other things, and I found that I couldn't even get through the material. I was trying to teach them just some of my favorite works of nonfiction and cultural criticism, stuff that had been really important for me as a young writer, um, and even more recently, and, uh, you know, pieces that entertained a level of moral complexity and where the the author was sort of, you know, testing his or her own assumptions and, and you know, um, being self-scrutinizing. And I, I found that I couldn't get through the material a lot of the time because the students would stop and say, whoa, 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 I can't, I can't read about this. I, I can't read this author sort of, you know, trying to sort through her experience of sexual assault and, and wondering, you know, if she was complicit in some ways or wondering about the various layers of this because it's internalized misogyny and I'm not even going to read any further. And it, it, it was really striking that it wasn't just that they were, that, that they found it distasteful, they found it frightening. They didn't even want to be confronted with a point of view that would uh, throw them off off course and make them uh, wrestle with their own assumptions. And it was just like, well, that's the whole point of being a student, uh, if not a thinking person in the world. Is, is an element of that you think is a tribalism and just wanting to fit in? Yeah, there's a lot of that. You know, yeah. I ultimately, you know, the, so the book, <laughs> first it was going to be called You Are Not a Badass. Then it was going to be called Woke Me When It's Over. <laughs> I still sort of wish that had been the title. <laughs> Um, and ultimately became the problem with everything. And, you know, obviously that's, uh, talking about, you know, how we label so many things problematic now. Uh, but ultimately for me, the, the problem with everything is, is just a sort of ambient loneliness and, and the way people, uh, are so disconnected and, and so sort of, uh, alone with their thoughts that they have to sort of congeal into these online tribes. And so they end up, I think, you know, I see a lot of people attaching themselves to ideas that they don't necessarily hold. Well, I have this, I have this theory here because Ireland's kind of a, not a few years behind, but America, that old cliche that America sneezes and the, you know, the rest of the world gets a cold. And that <laughs> that's they, a dangerous analogy. To it make. is a very dangerous analogy right now, actually. God. Yeah. We're, we're taping this at the end of April. The whole world coughs together <laughs> now, I guess. So I've, I've been an editor here. I've edited a couple of the bigger publications here. So I'm kind of more specifically in the early, like 2012, 2013, from then on inwards. So I not like around then, at least in Ireland, it was all clickbait. So this is, you need to get as yeah. many eyeballs as you can on the content that you're going to read. And it's obviously variations of whether they're BuzzFeed, you know, quizzes or something like that. You won't believe what, and then it's a yeah. aggregation site, basically. And I, I've, yeah. been as, I've been as guilty as anybody at refining those. But you talk about the media a little bit in the book too. But I, I have this theory that it's almost like the evolution of clickbait has become hot takes. So there's these zeitgeisty, yes. dip your toe in the water, see what the see what Twitter's saying, and then just kind of write accordingly, and that's the new clickbait. Yeah, you know, one of the things that's really frustrating for me as, as a journalist, as an essayist, 
is, you know, it used to be that having an original idea, having an idea that was provocative, um, yet also thought through, not gratuitously provocative, but um, a little risky, taking intellectual risks, that was what you were supposed to do. You were supposed to go against the grain. You know, early in my career, in, I started publishing things in the you know, early to mid-1990s when I was in my 20s. And I would write controversial essays and uh, you know, I would try to think them through and I had the benefit of editors and we did rewrites and we had fact checkers and you know, there was a very involved process to publishing. I'm sure you remember this <laughs> distant past. And, you know, a piece would come out and maybe it would get some angry letters to the editor and I would see them maybe six weeks later, if a few of them were published. Um, but in the meantime, I would be on to the next assignment. If I made people angry or if I, you know, forced them to think about things they didn't want to, to think about, um, that was the job. I mean, I always saw my role as an essayist, you know, as sort of looking at the world, looking at where the hypocrisies are, looking at the places where people are maybe thinking and feeling one thing, but saying something else, where the conventional wisdom is really at odds with uh, the truth or people's honest intellectual experiences. So I wanted to always examine those things. And that's really what excites me as a writer. And for a long time in my career, I was rewarded for that, that I would get, in, get more assignments. And, and in like places like the New Yorker and the New York Times, like, you know, the, the, the elite media, the, the mainstream elite media. And I noticed what's happened in the last five to 10 years is that uh, you get rewarded if you say the obvious thing. You get rewarded if you play to your audience, uh, if you uh, get a lot of you know, positive feedback on social media. Uh, and you know, really challenging assumptions is like the thing you're not supposed to do. <laughs> And I, I just, that blows my mind, quite honestly. I, I don't, I don't see the, any sort of upside in that. So that's something that I talk to students about all the time. And it's, it's really hard for them because how do you even get started in this climate as a, as a public thinker and writer? You know, I don't know. Hey guys, sorry to interrupt the show. I just wanted to briefly tell you about our sponsor for this season of The Delve, Spotlight Oral Care, which is an Irish company founded by two Irish dentists. Uh, they're a sustainable company, they're an ethical company. So long story short about me and my teeth, I had my teeth straightened a couple of years ago. It made me hyper aware of oral care in general. Spotlight Oral Care really recognized that and do products specific for people. Um, so I've been using their men's teeth whitening strips for a couple of weeks now. I've found them fantastic. I've also been using, which is the which is the crown and the jewel for me, uh, the Sonic Toothbrush, which is just a phenomenal product. It's got three different settings. Um, it's got a two-minute timer. So you're, you're cleaning your teeth for two minutes. I'm using their uh, sensitive toothpaste, and you're cleaning your teeth for two minutes, and it just switches off. You're like, okay, I've brushed my teeth for the sufficient amount of time. They've also given us a discount code of DELVE25. So if you use the code DELVE25, you'll get 25% off any Spotlight Oral Care products on their site. Back to the show. It's it's funny because if anybody's, you know, going to call somebody out on Twitter for something, I suppose, relatively inane, uh, should be forced to uh, share their WhatsApp group messages. So WhatsApp mm. groups here are huge, you know, memes and, you know, most of them are like super offensive and stuff. At least some of my crazy friends, some of the stuff that they send me, you know, so it's almost, it, it really is an hypocrisy because it's, it's one, one thing is almost public and one thing is, is very much private, but you would never share, you know, the, those right. private elements. 
It's funny. I'm not, I don't use WhatsApp. I'm like, a, I'm such a late adopter. Like I'm, I'm really, I, I, I recoil at, uh, even emojis and, and, and I hate gifts more than anything. GIFs. You should just be me trying to set all this up a few minutes ago. Running around like, yeah. Please have I mean, people for this. Showing my age, but, uh, yeah, I, I know I keep thinking that, that we'll move past this moment. I mean, one of the things that happened when, when Trump came along, um, and this is obviously happening globally, this sort of extreme populism, uh, it really gave the left an excuse to not engage in critical thinking. I mean, I talk about this a lot in the book, like this was already happening in the left. And I want to be really clear that uh, this kind of um, fetishization of vi victimization, <laughs> if you will, was happening well before Trump. And I think Trump was a, was a, was a symptom of this and, a, and an outgrowth of it. Um, but anyway, this was sort of already all in play. And then Trump was elected and the left was like, oh my gosh, we need all hands on deck. We cannot afford any kind of um, straying from the narrative. We can't afford any kind of critical thinking or nuance because if we say something that uh, might be too complicated for everybody to understand, if we give the other side any opportunity to like hijack um, our ideas and use them for, for bad, uh, we, we just can't have that. So therefore everything is going to be sort of hashtag resistance and, uh, pussy hats and believe women and just really, really, uh, reductive, uh, ways of processing the world. And I think it's been to our, to our huge detriment. And frankly, most people are tired of it. It's the media that keeps going on with it. <laughs> Your average person on the street can see through this BS. But somehow yeah. a lot of blue check people on Twitter uh, are happy to perpetuate it. Yeah, it's interesting because comedians seem to be the ones to predict that Trump was going to win. And comedians were the ones to predict Trump was going to win because a lot of them are traveling throughout America constantly. Right. We're going to those kind of smaller right. towns and stuff in America. And um, But you said that, you, not that you became unpopular with your friends, but your opinions kind of weren't you know <laughs> as zeitgeisty as you know the things that are talking around around the dinner table at dinner parties whatever it is so did you find yourself kind of you found yourself drifting yeah i mean your group or? i was on the wrong side all of a sudden which was bizarre because we all used to be we all used to think this way like it, you know we all i think had pretty sort of ironic uh views of of the world and of politics and you know especially as women i mean you know, I, I talk about this a lot in the book. I, I grew up and, you know, I was born in 1970. So I was a kid in the 70s. I was a teenager in the 80s. And, you know, throughout all that time, I never once had a sense of myself as a girl of being anything um, but equal to boys. In fact, the girls were doing better than the boys. Um, you know, even in the 70s, the girls were doing better in school. The boys were always acting up. Uh, by the time I got to college, there were more women enrolled in college than, than men. You know, we still have more, you know, slightly more women graduating from law school, I think even medical school than, than men. Now, obviously, uh, there are inequalities, but, you know, this is a whole other rabbit hole to go down. We don't have to necessarily go down it, but I think that, you know, it is, it's, it's biologically determined unfairly, I would say, but I don't think it's a grand conspiracy uh, against women. And I, I always got the sense that, um, you know, we identified as feminists, uh, but we all pretty much agreed that it was complex and that people were free to make their own choices and you were accountable for your own choices. And there was a just kind of baseline understanding of, you know, among kind of educated thinking women. 
And somehow around 2014, it became fashionable to deny all those complexities. You were on the right side of history if suddenly you were um, seeing uh, patriarchal forces everywhere, if you were seeing male ex you know, exploitation at the hands of men everywhere. And it just, it felt really disingenuous to me and I couldn't figure out why women that I had agreed with, you know, for decades uh, were suddenly seeing it differently. And frankly, I still am not sure why they're, they're seeing it differently. There's a lot of social rewards for going along with that narrative and a lot of social penalties for resisting it. Um, but I still find it curious that, uh, you know, so many people who have so much agency and so many resources uh, are happy to see um, oppression at every turn. You, you kind of you talk about that as well. And the analogy you use in the book is about like kind of giving men unnecessary levity. When a, when a guy in his, uh, who, in his mid-30s or something goes to view an apartment that you and your uh, your female roommate are staying in and he kind of makes a misogynistic comment about you did a fucking <laughs> oil, pay for the food. <laughs> And back then, this was whatever, the early 90s, you thought it was funny. You were laughing at the Yeah, game. that was an interesting moment because, so that happened in probably 1995 or four or something like that. So I had this room, apartment in New York City. Uh, we always had three roommates at any time. So we would, one person would leave and we would have to interview for a third roommate. And so my roommate and I, two women, we, we were interviewing people and this guy came in and he was, yeah, he was probably like 10 or 15 years older than we were. And he said something like, hey, I have an idea. Um, you know, if, if I move in here, how about if I pay for the food and you girls do the cooking? And, you know, my roommate was in film school. I was in graduate school. You know, we never really cooked anything. And we found this hysterically funny. Like we had this, we were all, we were embarrassed for him. Like yeah. we couldn't look at each other because we yeah. were burst out laughing. And you know, in, in retrospect, I think about that moment and I think about how, you know, we were in our early 20s then, it was the early 90s. If that had happened to our mothers uh, 20, 30 years earlier in the 60s, for instance, in the Mad Men era, um, I think our mothers would have been very offended. Our feminist mothers would have taken that um, more seriously and in less good humor than we did. And interestingly, 30 years on, Today, if something like that happened with young women, I suspect they would immediately run to their computers and go on social media and complain about this guy and, you know, say like, you know, fuck the patriarchy and, and how this was an, you know, you know, classic example of toxic masculinity and all this. And they would get a lot of reward for it. So I, I talk a lot about in the book how like there was, I think as a Gen Xer, we're really in a lot of ways in this sweet spot where we did not grow up assuming that we were oppressed. And yet we also didn't have this kind of onslaught of social media all the time telling us that we should feel oppressed. So I am mindful of the, the, the advantages <laughs> of being a Gen Xer. We, ha we certainly had it a lot easier than our mothers. There was real chauvinism and sexism in the workplace. Um, you know, not that there isn't now, but it was ubiquitous back then. Um, and I think we had it easier than young people today for a lot of reasons. And I can go into some of those theories of mine, but um, I am mindful of, of the ways in which things have changed and how my experience, um, I'm really speaking as a, as a Gen Xer and somebody who had the benefit of 
being young at a certain certain time of history, you know. So final question before I let you go. Um, it's Biden, if Biden wins in November, if Biden wins in November 3rd or November 4th, and he's saying he's going to have, or he's committed to having a female running mate, do you see this change? I know, but do you see this changing? Do you see, you know, the, the culture wars maybe been scaled back a little bit for want of a better term of it? Are people calming down, not getting as mad, the tribalism stopping? Well, what I wish dearly is that Biden had said, I will pick the most qualified candidate as a running mate, and then chosen a woman. To say from the beginning, oh, I'm gonna choose a woman, that's immediately putting that woman in a tokenized position. I can't for the life of me see why that is a feminist gesture. To say, oh, I'm gonna choose, you know, don't worry, I'm gonna check this box. Uh, and so, you know, yeah, I'll be happy when he has a running mate. Uh, frankly, I might be a little surprised if Joe Biden actually is the, the nominee. I think uh, people saying that, yeah. many things could happen along the way. Um, and I'm frankly worried about his ability to beat Trump. Um, but yeah, I just, I, it, that sort of, um, frankly, virtue signaling and pandering to what he perceives as a, as a progressive base that, that he needs to attract, you know, that, that was a, that was a, a Twitter move for him to say that. That he he's pandering to people on Twitter, which frankly are a tiny fraction of of, of voters and and pretty insubstantial, really. Um, so yeah, I, I and I yes. So to answer your questions, do I think the culture wars are going to stop uh, once Biden uh, has a running mate who's a woman and uh, does his thing? No, absolutely not. They will find ways. They will always find ways to make everything about the cultural look what's happened with the coronavirus it's become yeah. completely politicized yeah. and uh, you know the mask the, the 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 mask meme is like the new uh just sweet charlie or or the pussy hat well uh look Megan, i'm not going to keep any longer megan i really appreciate your time uh the book is genuinely phenomenal it's the best book i've read this year um and i'm looking forward to, to reading oh, thank from you. You. um so thanks so much for your time oh really thank you I appreciate it. Stay, stay well.